0: All summer, we've been preaching through the Psalms. All summer, we've been preaching through various Psalms that have come up in our Bible reading plan, uh, because our hope is that you would embrace the Psalms as a means of flourishing in your walk with God. That's our hope. Uh, Here's the thing, though, and you'll notice this as you look at the Psalms, they are raw and they are real. And I think that's what makes them so effective as we read them now and as we pray through them and as we just learn uh, about how to engage with God in God's world uh, through the Psalms. Psalm 73 begins by saying it is a Psalm of Asaph, who was one of King David's chief musicians. Now, whether this was written by Asaph himself or one of the large group of Psalmists that we know he trained, uh, we don't know. But whatever the case is, I think whoever wrote this Psalm and me, I think we would have been good friends. Here's why. One of my favorite quotes from uh, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. He said, "Friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden." The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, "What? You too? I thought I was the only one." What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And Psalm 73 is a personal testimony of Asaph and how he struggled with envy, which led to doubt, and how in the midst of his doubt, he then has an encounter with God that transforms his perspective and leads him to great trust. That's what this psalm is about. And when I hear his struggles, I know we'd be friends because my response to the things he's troubled with would be very much like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. This is what friendship with the psalmists will do in our life, and it reminds us that we're not alone in our struggles on this journey as we seek to walk with God. And what we're doing here is a journey. It's a journey with God. There's movement to the way that we walk with him We're not always on the peak of the mountaintop, and thankfully, we're not always in the depth of the valleys. But if we keep going, we realize that the destination is God and God himself. We are on a journey with him, and he is the point, the terminus for us, as we aim to be folded deeper into relationship with him. So here's the roadmap or the the pathway, the framework, so to speak, that I want us to use as we look at this psalm today. Just three points. I want us to look at where envy takes us, where envy takes us. I want us to look at where encounter leads us, and that's encounter with God, where that leads us. And then third, I want to look at finding our final refuge, finding our final refuge, that point of destination, so to speak. So if you want three words to make it easy, it's envy, encounter, and refuge. This is what we're going to look at. Look at the text, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now verse 1 is like the overarching truth that the psalmist is going to arrive at at the end of his journey, but he has some ground to cover before he gets there. So again, verse 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's the statement of belief. But verse 2 says, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And and I would say, why? Well, verse 3 tells us, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The envy in his heart, causes the psalmist to nearly stumble in his walk with God. Again, why? Because he cannot understand why some wicked people seem to have it easy, while some godly people seem to suffer so much. When he surveys the landscape of the pathway he's trying to walk on with God, he starts to doubt if it's all worth it. This is why I say the psalmist is a friend to us, because most of us have questioned this at some point in our lives as well. He's saying, God, if you're so good, why are your people suffering while the wicked prosper? It gets really raw as we look at verses 4 through 14. I want to read it for you one more time because I think it's important that we see this. The psalmist is basically saying, God... If you're so good, why are the people who are yours, why are they suffering while the wicked prosper? He keeps going in verse four and says, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And then he says, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's another way that I know me and this psalmist that we would be friends because he keeps going at great length when we've already gotten the point. And what is his point? He's saying, when I look at the world and I see God's people suffer and I see wicked people prosper, it makes me wonder if I'm on the right team. That is honesty. See, envy does at least two things. Envy can take us at least two places, two that I'm going to look at. The first is that envy takes us down a dark road of doubt. This is huge. We're going to come back to it, spend some time talking about this. The second is that envy takes us to a place where we lose our love. I want to to say it again. Envy takes us down the dark road of doubt. And secondly, envy takes us to a place where we lose our love. Here's what I mean. If you hate rich people, you will not be able to love your literal neighbors in Vancouver. Envy takes us to a place where we lose our love. Our psalmist says in verse three, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So envy takes us to a place where we lose our love and we lose our witness and we can't be the evangelists that we're called to be because when you're battling with envy, what you're really saying is that you wish you had their wealth and you wish it more than you wish they had your faith. When you're battling with envy, in a place like Vancouver, and you're losing your love, which means you're losing your opportunity to witness, what you're saying is you wish you had their wealth more than you wish they had your faith. I remember wrestling with this when I was a new Christian and I was in Bible college. I was doing my devotions, and these, these words jumped off the page from Psalm, or pardon me, Proverbs 23, and I've actually hung on to them ever since. Proverbs 23, 17, and 18 says, Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Christ City, I said this psalmist is a friend of mine, and whoever wrote that proverb was pretty helpful for me too, because it was a good warning that I needed to heed and hold on to. But the psalmist and I are wrestling with the same things, and maybe you are too. I want to ask you a couple questions. Do you find it easier to share the gospel with people who seem to have less than you? Or do you struggle to share the gospel with people who seem to have more than you? See, the good news is the antidote to envy whether it's taking you down the dark road of doubt, which again, we're gonna come back to, or or it's taking you to the place where you've lost your love, the good news is the solution is the same. It's actually right here in the text. I, I wanted us to see where envy can take us, but I also want us to understand where encounter with God leads us, where encounter with God leads us. Psalm 73, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. The psalmist is wrestling with this huge question that most of us have have wrestled with at some point in the past, or maybe are currently wrestling with right now, where he's saying, God, if you're so good, why are your people suffering while the wicked prosper? And he says that this wrestle and trying to understand how to to work with this uh, problem in his life, that it's a wearisome task. And then it says, until. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be a wearisome task until, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. See, in the Psalms, the sanctuary of God is the place of his presence. So he says in verse two to go back. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So again, the psalmist is saying to us, I started to stumble in my faith because I was envious of the prosperity of those who don't know God. And I couldn't make sense of why their life was easy. And my life and God's people's life is full of struggle. He keeps going, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He says, everything changed when I got into the presence of God. Then it all started to make sense. Okay, that's a word right there for you. That's something you need to take on board into the inventory of tools at your disposal for how you handle the difficulties of life. Everything changes when you stand in the presence of God. This is the turnaround in the text. This is the intersection on the journey that the psalmist is on. This is the recalibration of the GPS on the road with God. This, This is what happens. His perspective shifts in the presence of God. In his encounter with God, this encounter with God takes the psalmist from a place of doubt that came from his envy, Doubting God's goodness takes them to a place of trust. See, envy can take you down the dark road of doubt, or envy can take you to the place where you've lost your love, but an encounter with God will lead you to a deep assurance and take you to a place of profound trust. You say, how? How does that work? Well, the suffering of God's people has a new perspective when you realize that this life is not the end of the story. The problem of why bad things happen to good people. It's not just a problem that can lead a Christian to struggle with doubt in God's goodness. It's a universal problem that any religion and every worldview is going to have to eventually wrestle with, which means it's an issue that every human being needs to wrestle with at some point in their life. It just so happens that I think Christianity has the most compelling and best answer to this problem. See, Christianity reveals a God who is not distant or removed from human suffering, but actually reveals a God who is well acquainted with it. See, in every other religion or worldview, the the God, the gods, the supreme being, whatever moniker the the supreme Lord in that worldview or religion has, that, that God is far off, distant. Suffering is beneath them. But in Christianity, we have a God who enters into our human experience, identifies with us, and suffers with us and for us. Okay? Why? Because this life is not all there is. In Christ's incarnation, that, that is in his life, when he was born and he grew up and he lived and he taught and he did miracles and all the things that were going on in the teaching of Jesus, in his ministry life, in his humanity, Jesus suffered alongside his people, and he suffered at the hands of the wicked. He suffered in an ultimate sense when he was crucified for claiming that he was God who had come to save the world. But his suffering was vindicated when he was raised from the dead as the new pattern of what resurrection life is going to look like for all humanity who have placed their trust in him. So yes, he entered into our suffering, yes, but a huge yes, I suppose, is that he also made a way for us to enter into his glory. See, he entered into our suffering so that we could enter into his glory. And, and, and here's the big deal in the text that we're looking at here that helps the psalmist gain some clarity on how he should see the problem that he's been wrestling with. See, the new life and entrance into glory is not the end uh, of the arrogant and the wicked who have denied God. That's not their end. Look, just look at the text again. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Verse 18. Truly, you set them, that is the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So when the psalmist enters into the presence of God, when he has an encounter with God, it shifts his perspective to say there's actually more to life than this moment. And now I see why I don't need to envy the wicked. He is set free from his envy of the wicked. How? Well, it's because God reveals to this psalmist the end of the wicked And he sees that rather than him standing on shaky ground as he's struggling with his doubt in God's goodness, it's actually the arrogant and the prosperous wicked who are denying God and trusting in their wealth who are the ones who are standing on the shaky ground. That's what he recognizes as he has this encounter with God in the sanctuary. When he brings the burden of his envy and the problems that he has seen in life, When he brings these into the presence of God, it's the encounter with God that recalibrates his perspective. See, the present suffering of God's people is not the end of their story. And the present ease and comfort of the wicked is not the end of their story. The present realities are not the ultimate realities. Because God has a plan of salvation where he will reveal himself to the world in sending his son to suffer and die in our place. That was in front of on the historical timeline where this psalm was being written. That God is going to send his son into the world to suffer and die in our place, to rise from death in triumphant glory, and the psalmist looks ahead and sees that all of this is going to happen. He has a new perspective. It's not all about the here and now experience of the moment. It's about the ultimate reality that is to come. So does that give us an answer for why God's people suffer and the wicked succeed? Not really. Not really. Um, it just tells us that we are not looking at it from the infinite perspective of an eternal God. Okay? It, it might not give you the explanation that you're looking for, but it gives us deep meaning uh, to all who suffer in faith, who know that the injustice they suffer here and now will one day be fully and finally vindicated in the future that God promises. It doesn't necessarily explain why some things go well and some things don't. What it says is there's deep meaning in the midst of it because God participates in it and is with you in it, in the suffering that you experience, and that that is not your end if you are in Christ. If you are walking with him in relationship with him, though you may suffer in circumstances now, yes, your end is not suffering. Therefore, there's no need to envy the wicked for whom it appears it's going easy. Now, I know that was a lot. And so if I lost you at some point, just come back. Just look at what the psalmist says with the new, fresh perspective that he's got here. He starts with a confession that moves into an assurance. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Do you hear how good that is? You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And and after it's all said and done, you will receive me to glory. Glory. Okay, hundreds of years before the preaching of Jesus and the announcement of the eternal life that he came to give us. That's the the new life that Christ purchased for us on the other side of his suffering. Okay, hundreds of years before that. Here we have a psalmist proclaiming that his encounter with God has led him from doubt in God's goodness to the assurance of being received in glory. And church, what he says next should be a deep comfort to you who have struggled and suffered. It should be a deep comfort to you. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, come on. I don't think you heard it right. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Seeing God as the ultimate prize and the unsurpassable inheritance is the antidote to envy. See, if you have him, what do you lack? When your desire for God surpasses your desire for anything and anyone else, you are on the pathway to deep satisfaction that is not based on circumstantial comfort or prosperity when your joy in God eclipses any circumstantial joy that you could take hold of, you know that you've encountered the God of Psalm 73. So let me ask you, could it be that the envy in your heart has as its source too big a view of this life and too small a view of God? Could it be? Could it be that the source of the envy you're wrestling with when you compare your wealth to the wealth of the wicked, could it be that the source of your envy is an underestimation of the eternal worth of knowing God? Could it be that you are underestimating what is eternally yours in Christ? I'm just asking. First Peter 1, verse 3 Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's yours. I said we needed to see where envy can take us, where encounter with God leads us, And then how we go about finding our final refuge. How do we go about finding our final refuge? Verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Now just stop there. If that seems like a hard word to you, recognize that Jesus' warnings of eternal condemnation in the Gospels far surpassed anything like that. The reality is, the good news in our world is that injustice will be judged. The bad news is that we too will be judged. The answer to both the judgment of the world and the judgment of us, the answer is Jesus. Verse 28 says, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. See, in the end, the psalmist knows, in spite of all the brokenness and the suffering and the injustice in the world, he knows that God is his final refuge. See, I am, I am Colossians says, hidden with Christ in God. If Jesus is your refuge, the judgment of the world should not cause you any concern. Your refuge is where you run, it's where you hide, it's where you find your identity, it's where you go for your security. I just want to say your refuge defines your worship. Who or what is your final refuge in life? If your final refuge is like your spouse or your kids or your job or your wealth, or your social standing, or your good reputation, or your uh, ability to be loved by all, if those are all of your final refuge, you're going to crush your spouse, you're going to crush your kids, you're going to have a way higher estimation of your work than you should, and your wealth is going to perish, and it's going to be taken from you at some point, you can't take it with you. If If any of those things are your refuge, just know that your refuge defines your worship. Those are things that you've elevated to a place of supremacy. Really elevated to the throne where only God should be. Your refuge defines your worship. Make the Lord God your refuge from the storms of life. Let me close with this. because I think it's interesting. This is the outcome of finding your final refuge in God. Verse 28 says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He says, I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So when the psalmist was at the height of his angst before he had the encounter with God in the sanctuary, when he was at the height of his doubt and he was really struggling with how to understand this grand problem of life that he's been faced with. He said this, he said in verse 15, I skipped over it earlier so that I could come back to it here. He said, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's basically saying, I should keep my mouth shut so that I don't make anyone else in my community stumble into the doubt that I'm experiencing right now. Okay? But that was before he encountered God in the sanctuary, wasn't it? After the encounter with God, and after he understands what God has promised him, and after he has made God his final refuge, then he says, it is good for me to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He says that I may tell of all your works. Okay, Christ City. Here, here's the thing. We as a community are a community on mission. We don't live here by accident. You're not part of this congregation by accident. You're not watching this video by accident. We live in a city that desperately needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to know who he is and what he has done and they need to know the promises of the true inheritance that is ours in eternal life. They need to know. So can I plead with you if you're a follower of Jesus, can I plead with you if your envy of the prosperity of the wicked has caused you to hate your neighbor or if your envy of the prosperity of your neighbor has caused you to believe that they don't really need the gospel, can I plead with you to repent from that? And to go to them? See, what you have in Christ cannot be bought with the wealth of this world. And regardless of the level of success that we think our neighbors have, they are just like the rest of us. They are desperately in need uh, of an encounter with God that will reorient their perspective and lead them to find their final refuge in him. That's what they need the most. So let's go and tell of all his great works something that we can do together to participate in what God is doing in our city.